you remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10. We are continuing our series through the book of Hebrews, looking at the steadfast hope we have in Christ. Last week we looked at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, and uh, this morning I'm going to read those verses again because they're very much tied in to the following verses which serve as the basis for our reflection this morning. So I'll read 4.14 through 5.10. Know that we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. Let's hear God's word together. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we have heard you speak as your word was read. We pray that we would continue to listen as you speak, as we examine your word. That you might use me to speak truth to your people for their benefit. Would all else fall away? Would what we do in this time together be acceptable and beneficial to us because of the work of Christ? In whose name that we pray, amen. Earlier this week, I picked up the phone and called an organization, I won't share its name or entity, but I called them because I had witnessed one of their employees acting in a way that was unbecoming to the mission and work of that organization. They were being a poor representative of what that group was all about. So I called, really with the intention to inform them that, so that someone who had power and authority could address it. I was about three sentences into my conversation with the operator when he said, oh, 
you're one of those and hung up the phone. I'm not fully sure what he meant by one of those. I, I have some guesses based on the context of that conversation. But based on his decision that I was one of those, I take it he was not interested in what I had to say. And certainly not in passing me on to someone who actually had the power to do something about what I wanted to say. I called back. I got another operator who was more considerate and was then able to leave a message for a supervisor. I don't expect to hear back. I haven't heard back. Because that organization employs people not interested in hearing from the public. Probably because the leadership is not really interested in hearing from the public. When we don't think that others want to hear from us, when we don't think that there is a means to connect to them, say when an operator will not transfer you, then over time what we will begin to do is stop pursuing them. If they aren't interested in what we have to say, if we can't get through to them, why keep trying? When we don't think that someone is listening to us, is hearing us, we stop. If, if our governing authorities don't hear us when we give them feedback on legislation, when we call our senators or our representatives, and they don't act, we begin to lose faith that they actually care about what their people have to say. If you go to the doctor's office and you share your symptoms or what's been happening and you get the sense that the doctor is not listening to you or that they don't care, what are you going to do at the next appointment? Are you even going to go back to that doctor? Now what we tend to do if other people won't listen to us, even those who should listen to us, those who are meant to do something for us, we begin to say, you know what, if they're not going to listen, I'll take care of it myself. I'll figure it out another way. In verse 16 of chapter 4, we are encouraged, God's people are encouraged to boldly draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Last week, we, two weeks ago, we've reflected how Jesus' priestly work means we can boldly seek help when we are tempted, when we are struggling, and we can then have Christ who will help us hold on to him. But as the preacher builds the case for Jesus' priestly work, it is meant to help the struggling Hebrews understand that as they come, as they lay their requests before God, as they say, Lord, this is where I need forgiveness, this is where I need help to follow you, the author of Hebrews, God speaking in his word to his people, wants his people to understand that they are heard. That because Jesus has come as a great high priest, and because of what's described in verses 1 through 10, we can have assurance that God hears us. And when we are tempted to look to other options, when we are tempted to revert to old ways, we are to see the way to be heard by God is in Jesus. Jesus comes as our high priest because God desires to hear us in the first place. 
Jesus comes as a high priest because humility is necessary to priestly service. And Jesus comes as a high priest to assure us of salvation. That is to assure us that we're heard. This morning, we are encouraged to keep speaking, to keep asking, to keep praying. Because if we are praying in the name of Christ, our high priest, we know that we are heard. Reflecting on Jesus as the high priest, we are meant to see, first and foremost, that God desires to hear us. That unlike that organization I called that was disinterested, God wants to hear from his people. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf. But he doesn't do this on his own, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, is what we see in verse 4. Then verse 5 says that this is also true of Christ. The priestly office in the first place, the very existence of the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament, points to the heart of God for his people. Points to the fact that he wants relationship with us. He wants to know where we need help. He wants us to ask for forgiveness. He wants us to come before him. Times of struggle often leave us as feeling as if God is not interested in what is happening in our lives, as if he has turned away from us. Psalm 44, 24 says this, Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? psalmist there, like many of us have experienced, when going through difficult times, feels as if God is not paying attention because our circumstances are difficult. And those following Jesus here may feel as if their struggle means that God doesn't care, that God is not interested in hearing from his people. The priestly lineage culminated in Christ points to the opposite, that God does want to hear. Notice that the priesthood is not self-appointing. It's not a matter of us making our way to God, of us picking a representative and saying, this is the person who is the best of us, who is going to get us to God, and then when we force our way into God's presence, then God must listen to us. No, God is the one that appoints the priests. He says the people need someone who is able to represent them in my presence. This is specifically talking about the Day of Atonement when the priesthood would represent the people so that they would receive forgiveness and cleansing from their sins. But the whole of the priesthood was about this. God selecting a group of people and the high priest among them as his chosen to bring the people into his presence. God appointed the priesthood from the line of Aaron Aaron didn't take the position upon himself. God appointed him and those that would come after him to represent the people to God in the temple so that he would hear them, that he would forgive them, that he would care for them and deliver them from their enemies. But this isn't unique to Aaron. And this is where the preacher understands that as the people are wrestling and they're saying, maybe we're suffering and struggling because God doesn't hear us, because Jesus isn't a way to be heard, we have to go specifically to Aaron and the temple that the priest there would hear us. 
he then points to the fact that Jesus is a high priest. But he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 6 there is quoting from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is quoted throughout the New Testament quite often, and especially here in the book of Hebrews. But more often than not, it's quoted about the fact that my Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The apostles use this early in the book of Acts to point to the fact that David was speaking of someone that was his Lord, pointing to the Davidic kingship of Jesus when he came as the true Messiah. When they think about what it is for God to provide for their salvation, they're typically thinking of the Messiah as the king, but in that same book, that same psalm, that same person is appointed as a priest. Now we're going to talk about Melchizedek in the coming weeks. We're going to dive a little bit more deeply into who he is and his significance. But we read of him in Genesis 14. We're told that he was a priest of God Most High. Abraham encounters Melchizedek after leading an army to recover those that had been taken captive, including Lot. And when he wins this battle, he also gets a lot of the bounty. He receives a lot of loot and treasure as a result of this great victory and this deliverance of these people. And when he encounters Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses him. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it reads this, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Why would Abram give Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth? Because Abram recognized that God had appointed Melchizedek as a representative to God. And that Abram, who had just won this great battle, had been greatly enriched by God's blessing to him, responds with gratitude to the one that God has appointed. Abram is recognizing God has appointed Melchizedek as a priest. Therefore, God wants to hear through me. And so his gift is given to Melchizedek with the assurance that God would receive that gift. And so then Jesus comes and enters that order of priesthood. And he offers himself on our behalf so that we can be received by God because God appoints him for that purpose. Now, we need to to deal with the fact that we don't tend to want or like this idea of mediated access to God. But we had unmediated access to God in the garden. Adam and Eve had God coming and talking with them in the cool of the evening. And they rejected the sufficiency of God. They wanted what God had without God. They didn't want to depend on Him And so they cut him out. And many in our society reject the uniqueness of Christ as the way to God. It seems narrow. It seems unkind. We should be able to access God on our own. And sometimes, therefore, we reject formal religion or organized religion as being too restrictive. But when God appoints a priesthood, when God appoints a means of worshiping him, and ultimately when God appoints Christ... It's not about God restricting access to himself, but God giving us the only means by which he might be accessed. We used to 
live in Iowa, and Iowa is very different than New Hampshire. There are not so many streams and rivers, certainly not so many hills and mountains and valleys, and so it is a lot easier to travel across Iowa. But the thing is, you still need to know how to get somewhere in Iowa, just as you do here in New Hampshire. You still need directions. You still need a path. Even if you were to go to Iowa and say, hey, I want you to come over to my house. I, here is where I live. Despite the lack of obstacles, the reality is if there is no path, if there is no roadway to get to your house, they're never going to find you. They can wander around freely, openly, across fields, flat lands, seeing, but unless they know actually where to find you among those fields, they may never find you in the first place. The fact that God says, I have appointed Jesus in order for you to access me, as the fulfillment of me appointing a priesthood to access me, is not a sign of God's restriction, but of God's pursuit. The fact that he actually wants to hear us. You know, you ever been given someone's phone number on a business card and you call and it's not to them? Maybe it's to their personal assistant or maybe it's to the office. You know that that person actually wants to hear from you when they give you what? Their personal cell phone number. That's the way that's actually going to access them. Jesus, as our great high priest, shows us that God desires to hear from us. That he desires someone to make a path to account for our sin so that our prayers can be heard, so that we can receive forgiveness. Nowadays, we don't need ironic priests. We don't need others to represent us, but God's Son has come sent from the Father so that whoever calls on Jesus' name will be able to be heard by the God. I'm not a priest. I have a special role in pointing you to God through his word and the sacraments and discipleship, but I don't represent you to God. I point to Christ who does. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, whether at the beginning of our prayer or at the end of our prayer, what we're doing is not saying a few magic words as if suddenly those make those, those prayers somehow magic. But what we do when we say we're praying in Jesus' name is a reminder to us that God sent his son in order that we might have a way for our prayers to be heard in the first place. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just, God, you are going to hear us because of what Jesus has done, but it's also reminding us that God wants to hear us because he sent Jesus as his son. But if Jesus is a priest, if he was heard and appointed by God, why the suffering? Why the struggle? Why did Jesus die on a cross? And why are those who are following Jesus suffering with persecution and difficulty and setback? And so the author, led by the Spirit, points to the fact that humility is necessary for the priestly work of bringing the people to God. They are confessing a Savior who was crucified on the cross. And we read in 1 Corinthians that this was a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. This was hard sledding. Verse 15 of chapter 4 addressed this by saying this meant that Jesus was able to sympathize with our weakness. 
in what we're reading this morning, the passage develops our understanding that humility was necessary for priestly service. First of all, humility was necessary because what? The priest wasn't self-appointed. It was a great honor. Verse 4 tells us, and no one takes this honor for himself. It truly is an honor, but only when called by God. In order for someone to understand their role as a priest, they would need to understand that it was God's initiative, not theirs. What kind of men were called to serve? They were meant to be those that God had chosen. They weren't the holy ones. They weren't necessarily good or awesome men that they were supposed to represent. The priests were supposed to represent wayward and ignorant people. If they had a sense of pride, if they had a sense of arrogance, if they had a sense of self-worth above and beyond the reality, what likelihood was it that they would actually represent those people to God? You think of it this way. We talk about people forgetting their roots, who leave their hometown, who, who make it big, who become rich, and never return to where they are from to the people that shaped them. Now, the priest was continually reminded of their weakness, having to offer sacrifices for themselves, and especially on the Day of Atonement, before they could ever represent the people and offer the sacrifice on behalf of their sins, the priest had to first offer sacrifice for their own sins. The priestly role was to be one of humility, of acknowledged weakness, of acknowledged need in order to accurately do their job of representing the people to God. Now that's not to say that all high priests in history were humble. Many were presumptuous. And some were not heard by God because they failed to account for their own weakness. And thus they failed to obey. But a priest called by God was not self-appointed and commissioned to represent weak people as a weak person in humility. Thus for Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, who has been established in his call as, as we were reminded, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that points to Jesus' divinity, that points to his rule and majesty as an appointed king, doesn't keep Jesus from being humble and suffering because he's also a priest. For all of his glory, Jesus is necessarily humble. He didn't appoint himself to the task, but we are told that the same God who calls him son appointed him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This isn't just the preacher's words about Jesus. This is what Jesus said about himself. He says in the book of John, But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. So if Jesus has come as a priest who is going to represent us before God, we should expect him to be humble. He exhibits humility in his willingness to obey the Father, in his willingness to learn obedience to the point of suffering. Although he was a son, some versions have this, though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Not as if Jesus didn't know what suffering was, didn't know what obedience was. But there is a different form of obedience when everything is good as opposed to when everything is difficult. 
true obedience is seen not in when we get everything we want or it benefits us. True obedience is when we obey for the glory of the one that obeys us, calls us to obey. And this is what we see in Jesus' life and ministry. That throughout his life, he is heard by God because of his reverence. Jesus puts the will of his Father, of obeying his Father first and foremost, demonstrating to us what true obedience looks like. When he is fasting in the desert for 40 days before his earthly ministry truly begins, Satan, the evil one, comes and tries to tempt him with God's word and tries to say, these things are allowable for you. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do those because what I'm here to do is my Father's will. At the end of his ministry, not in the wilderness, but in the garden, Jesus prays, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus prays to one who is able to save him from death. He could pray, and as he said, my father would send legions of angels to rescue me. But Jesus humbles himself to obey for people who can't obey. Because the thing that is most important to him is being pleasing and reverent to God. And we see throughout his life and ministry, he prays for healing and people are healed. He prays for the resumption of sight and people can see. The humility of Jesus, his meekness, his willingness to endure suffering shouldn't cause us to look down on Jesus, but admit all the more how he can be our high priest because he comes and walks among our struggles. He comes and he suffers along with us and yet he obeys when we do not. We have rejected certain forms of exalting and, and lifting up our representatives. You know, in, in, in the Protestant church, we have rejected a lot of the pomp and circumstance of Roman Catholicism. In our culture, we have tended to reject uh, formal distinctions between those you know, who are bosses and those who are employees by dress. We ten have tended to flatten such differences. But even as we've rejected some of those kind of formal and outward signs of distinction between the important and the unimportant, we still have a tendency to look to leaders as people who should be strong, as those who should be successful, as those who should be good-looking. This this week I read of a gifted church planter and pastor, someone I went to seminary with, who has been accused of sexually harassing and bullying women in his church. And as it was being looked into, the church's provisional session, I'm quoting here, informed a woman's husband that they were aware of the perpetrator's shortcomings, but that they believed it was God's will that he remain pastor of the church. One elder even commented that the pastor was a good-looking guy, and that the women were always looking at him in public. And then they said, so we're going to help him. And they paid for counseling for this pastor. But not pa counseling for the women who had suffered under his pastorate. They said, the pastor, 
our leader, the one that is important. He's a good-looking guy. You probably misinterpreted what was happening. He's so important to God that we need to protect his position, and we're going to help him out with counseling. But you who are suffering, you who have struggled, you're not as important. This is the exact opposite of what we should conceive of when we think of leadership within the church. Pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers, they're not priests, but they are men and and in certain circumstances, women who are called to point us towards God. And if they are people that are unwilling to suffer, if they are people unwilling to acknowledge the weakness of others, and therefore unwilling to acknowledge their own weakness then we will be led away from God rather than to God. We should be promoting those who are humble, those who are willing to suffer, those who will endure suffering for the sake of righteousness, including when they are unrighteous, acknowledging their unrighteousness, as the priests were meant to. And that means for us, even those of us that aren't leaders, we have a task of pointing others towards God. We're not formal priests, but we're supposed to help bring people to God that they might encounter God through Jesus. Is our representation of God to the world that God will hear you because we are put together? Because we don't suffer? Because our children are perfectly behaved? Because our house is well maintained? Or will our testimony be that we are weak and needy people? That God hears because of Christ. And so if you are weak and needy and ignorant and wayward, Christ can hear you too. Jesus comes to fulfill righteousness, to learn obedience through suffering, though a son, though the rightful king, and in, so that in that humility of suffering, he can really represent us towards God. We can know that we are heard because Jesus came as a high priest who was willing to be humble, to show us that God desires to hear us, and lastly, to assure us of salvation. An insufficiently reverent priest is an obstacle to communion with God. And unfortunately, the Jews had had some not very reverent, not very holy, not very righteous priests in their history. But we read in the passage that Jesus is fully reverent. That is, he has every right to stand before God. And we have the evidence of God hearing him and answering his prayers. Even when those prayers could have delivered him from death, he rather wanted to do God's will. He is also an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. That is, he is a once and forever priest. Consider the history of God's people. They had kings that were good and kings that were not so good. They had priests who were righteous and priests who were not so righteous. And so at any given moment, those who were seeking to follow God, those who were seeking to offer sacrifices, those who were seeking to be cleansed in their conscience before God, had to ask, well, is this representative able to represent me? Is this one good enough? I enjoyed right relationship with God before, but what about now? Jesus is appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His is an eternal priesthood. He is one who has also been delivered out of death as he prayed to God. He is resurrected from the grave. And so we don't have to ask, 
Is this representative good enough? Or am I going to lose? I might be heard by God right now, but is that going to change in the future? Jesus' eternal priesthood, His forever consistent obedience before God assures us of our ongoing hearing before God. His devotion meant that Jesus heard Him. The Father said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If this is what God the Father says of His Son, then those who pray in Jesus' name can be assured that we are heard. We can be assured that, as verse 9 tells us, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. And what does Jesus call us to do in obedience but to trust and follow Him? If our standing before God was dependent on our behavior, if our standing before God was dependent upon the reverence of a priestly lineage, if our standing before God was based on the righteousness of your pastor or the moral integrity of your denomination, we would have every reason to be unsure that God was hearing our prayers, that we were truly forgiven. We can look at our circumstances and then ask, how does God feel about me? Is this happening in my life because God doesn't hear me, because He doesn't care about me, because my voice isn't making it to Him? The author of Hebrews, writing to this church that he loves, says, if you are coming to God in Christ, if Jesus is your way to God, if He is your representative, if you are coming to Him as your priest, not your religious rites, not the temple, not whether things are going well or not, then you can be assured that God hears your cries for mercy, your desire for grace. Kids in my household are still pretty young. Sometimes when there is nothing else to do, we play hide-and-go-seek in our house. And there's something about young kids as they are growing in their development and their understanding of their bodies and the world around them, that sometimes misses a bit of how to play hide-and-seek well. On one hand, they think if they can't see us, then we can't see them. And also, often, that just because we can't see them, they tend to think that we can't hear them. And it's our job as loving parents or uncles and aunts playing with them to maybe be a little patient and not give away how quickly they've given away their spot. Well, we can be like kids. We can be in a difficult circumstance. We can be struggling. We can be attacked. And because we don't know what God is doing in that circumstance, because God's presence seems to be obscured or overshadowed by the circumstances, we can think that because we can't see God in that, that God can't hear us when we pray for help against temptation, help to overcome trial, help to stand firm. But Jesus came and walked on this earth. Jesus suffered and remained obedient 
Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that though our circumstances might obscure God, we can see Jesus, read what he has done for our lives, and know that God does hear us, will hear us, and will not stop listening to our cries for help because Jesus is our eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, you hear me, and you hear us. Not because we have it figured out. Not because we fully understood what we just read. But because Jesus came to show us your desire to walk with us. To be a provision for us of full obedience when we are disobedient. And in his victory, to assure us that we will always be heard by you. That you will always respond to our request for forgiveness with mercy and grace. Help us, Lord, when we cannot see what you are doing, when we do not understand, when we want to look to other things, to look to Christ. And in Christ, see your love for us. Amen.